1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Beats, Rye, and Types, your favorite podcast about food, computers, and music. We are here joined this week by a uh, special guest, Idaline Bobay, who is joining us from San Francisco, and uh, she chose our intro music today, uh, Beyonce's Formation, which I'm sure you've heard and probably have seen the video about, and your mom has probably called you and told you that. Uh, she had an opinion about that video one way or the other. Um, but so welcome, Edeline. It's very nice to have you on the show. Cool. And so uh, we always ask our guests why they chose the intro song that they chose for the podcast. So Edeline, why did you choose the intro song for the podcast?
2: So at this point, unfortunately, for various reasons that we won't get into, the actual recording of Edeline's response was lost, which is a serious bummer. Not only because it made it hard to edit this episode and forced me to record this little bit, but because her answer was way more thought out, well-researched, and eloquent than any version that we could provide. However, the rest of the episode doesn't really make sense without the beginning of the conversation we had about Beyoncé and Formation, so I'm going to do my best to summarize. Edeline picked Formation because not only is it a hot song with a dope beat, but it also showed the duality of two different sides of blackness in America today. On one side, you have the song and the lyrics, which seem firmly rooted in black capitalism. She's talking about materialism, red lobster, having money, being rich, etc. This is in almost stark opposition to the video, which shows scenes of protest, activism, and poor black communities and Black Lives Matter in opposition to the police. The work that Edeline does is represented here, but seems at odds with the actual song. So not only is this generally an interesting thing to to see side by side, We have to consider or at least think about what Beyonce's own role is here. She's obviously an amazing and inspiring individual, but is she using the imagery of protest as just a meme? Is she doing this to propel her own success or is this actually a song of protest? It's hard to wrap your head around, especially when she herself won't talk about it either way. Idaline also wanted to pick the song because it's a starting point for a conversation about her role in activism and her views on the struggle of the community building that she's doing and its being at odds with black capitalism. Trust me, she said this much better than I ever could. But now, back to the actual conversation. An
1: interesting aspect of it, specifically this Beyonce video song thing, is that a music video, a video is an opportunity to like make a contemporary artistic statement. And uh, it's funny because it, the production value of that video is extremely high, right? Like that, the video probably cost a lot of money to produce there were a lot of people involved in conceiving of that video, executing on that video, acting in that video and all of that stuff. Right. And so using that platform and opportunity to expose people to that type of imagery, I mean, it's very interesting. I, I, of course, I can't really comment, like you said, like strategically, what the point of it was. It doesn't necessarily matter if Beyonce literally had the thought that, i'm going to capitalize on black lives matter and 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 exploit this imagery in my video or not it is uh fascinating on any level you would have to consider it like a a brave thing to do for her to like to embrace that as opposed to any other number of things she could have chosen to portray in that video and it does get a lot of people seeing things that they wouldn't normally see which is like a very a dominant theme in American politics right now, right? Like everything that is hitting the mainstream and that is, is like pushing that window wider and wider on, on both sides. Like my wife and I were having a conversation about it this morning in the car where if you, she saw some, graphic about Hillary Clinton's like what 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 Hillary Clinton talks about what she says she cares about or whatever and, and like judgments about that aside it's amazing to see the impact that you know people with a platform can have when they decide that they're going to realign what is acceptable to discuss in popular discourse so the fact that You have, like, both Democratic candidates on a debate. All of the sudden, both Democratic candidates are taking uh, institutional racism as, like, a given. And then you have the Republicans that are, like, trying to, like, make each other look wimpy for not liking guns enough or whatever. It's just like... It's so fucking crazy, like the whole thing is so intense, and it's just uh I love what you said about i mean it was your passion obviously for all the stuff came through and what you what you were talking about in that in in describing why you chose the song, but it's just damn, like what a it's just this is such a time to be have like a brain that works and be capable of like <laughs> interpreting all this stuff, so it's a really. <laughs> Yep, shout out to Edeline's friends that listen to our show. Thanks for getting us, thanks for putting in a good word for us um and and getting her on here cuz it's super this is a great time I think to have someone with your point of view uh address like uh, anyone but our our audience uh specifically.
2: Yeah, it's interesting like the I think another point too is that when we talk about activism, sometimes there's two sides of it that I think people talk about a lot and one is like this uh, communication and, and like open awareness side, uh, changing people's awarenesses about certain things. And I think that that's a lot of what we, what we've seen over the past, you know, two or two years since, uh, Ferguson and since, you know, th- like these kind of topics have really come to the forefront of the national debate and all this stuff. Not that it didn't exist before then, but that the awareness of it exists has grown, I think a fair amount. It's fair to say that Beyonce, whether or not she intended it or not, definitely pushed that, that side of it forward. But one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you too is because I feel like you've done the other side or one of the other sides, which is actually being on the ground and, and working with people and working with communities to actually accomplish things with individuals as opposed to on this kind of stage. We'd love to hear more about your work there and kind of you know, what, what, what's what been keeping you busy lately on, on that front as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just wanna um, kind of echo what you just shared. It's really, really important to have um, communication. Communication is so very important because every day we're fed very capitalistic communications by the media. Um, About consume, 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 talking about stereotypes of different people of color, things that make us different instead of uniting us. So, anytime we can get a chance to really kind of disrupt that type of communication wave is really important because consciousness is the first step. Consciousness, awareness, then it leads to you critiquing and analyzing. Which then leads to actually you taking action. Like, hey, this is unfair or this isn't right. Or, you know, I've always had a feeling that this wasn't right. But now I, I know there's a community out there that I feel more secure to do something with. Because it often feels very burdensome if you feel like the only one. And, you know, you're not motivated to really provoke change. But once you hear people talking about it then it motivates you like, hey, this is a real issue. And I have a community. So it makes the walk and the journey that much more worth it. These days, uh, I definitely feel I, I'm very busy. Um, And I, I would say like, I've been busy as a child, you know, um, like at the age of like seven, you know, sweeping up The streets of North Philadelphia and Badlands—you know—it's a very poor neighborhood in North Philadelphia. Uh, There's like eighty percent of the the community lives under the poverty line. So it's a lot of drugs. It's a lot of um, prostitution. It's a lot of—you're faced with uh, a lot of issues that you know Ferguson, East Oakland. Detroit is faced with. So it's not just something that's unique to North Philadelphia, but it's something that's across the community in the U.S. I mean, right now, uh, statistically, um, the U.S. shows in 2015, there's 48% of Americans live either in poverty or low income. Poverty meaning $11,000, and then low income is just twice of that. How, how do we get there for... America, the United States, to be such a wealthy country, how do we have 48% of its people live in low income or poverty? And why don't we know, like, why don't we identify ourselves as poor people, as working class, as people who are living in poverty? You know, we get super confused with being able to consume, being able to buy something. We're like, oh, well, we're not poor. I can buy this. But just because you could buy something and just because you have purchasing power doesn't mean you're not poor. There's a lot of debt in the United States because of that. So a lot of what I've been doing is really working with communities and trying to understand like why are we poor? What is poverty? How do we relate? Um, Kind of take that approach using like technology. So my first time getting involved with technology was when I graduated high school. So I graduated high school with like a 1.9 or 1.8 GPA. Really, really bad. I don't recommend people doing that. <laughs> but I went to a school that was very much school-to-prison pipeline, where 80%, 75 to 80% of the students did not graduate high school with us. So we came in like 1,200 students and graduated like 287, which the statistics are really just... I mean, they're really depressing. We had we had more police officers in our school than teachers. And the teachers that we did had most were substitute teachers. So they really didn't have an agenda. They really didn't push education on us. Like the demographic, why I'm drawn to working with poor communities is because that's my community. And why tech is because my life completely changed once I put my hand on my first laptop and was able to to just close my achievement gap because I was introduced to so much information knowledge that was on the web. So although I did graduate with a 1.9 GPA, I got accepted into college through a program called the Philadelphia Partnership Program, which the program doesn't look at your GPA or SAT scores. It allows you to go to college and gives you a second chance so long that in your first year you graduate with a 2.5, you can stay in school. So my first semester, I didn't have a 2.5, and I was definitely on my way of failing. But my mom was like, well, what do people have? Um, what do other students have that you don't? Well, I, I tell her about you know a computer or a laptop, and she introduces me to my first laptop. And to me, that's where like my life trajectory changed. So to me, it's very important to understand, like, hey, there's a lot of information and a lot of knowledge out there through technology. So I want to work with poor communities and technology and kind of combine political education uh, around that because I've, I'm have i 31 now, but leaving my house at 18 to go to college and really just um, understanding like, wow, a lot of people, they didn't grow up like I did. They don't live the way that people live in North Philadelphia. Why are there's different neighborhoods and different opportunities available in those different neighborhoods? So I kind of do that by providing like, tech education to marginalized communities and introducing political education within those tech education workshops. Because it's more, to me, it's more important to really understand the root cause analysis of why poverty is existing. So I'm not trying to just educate youth from poor communities on how to get rich. That's not the goal. My goal is not to make efficient capitalists. My goal is to... To increase consciousness in these youth to understand their their conditions in their neighborhoods and use technology to do something about it. So that's how I view my tech activism, and that's what's been keeping me busy. I was like a year in Ferguson. Um, I've done my first work in like Tamil Nadu, working with uh, the lowest caste system, teaching them about agriculture and technology, and really how to be sustained in their community. I mean, just this weekend, I flew from New York, which is where I'm working right now, during my day job, which I'm an IT consultant at ThoughtWorks. And people get confused because they're like, do you get paid to do this? I'm like, no, I don't get paid to do this. I just try to sustain um, my activism life by having a full-time consulting uh, day job. Which I didn't do before. Before I, I did do all social justice and it's a very poor um, lifestyle and you know I'm seen with a lot of obstacles, couch surfing and just my college debt and other debt and it wasn't I was like I, I can't really get over my obstacles because I don't have funds coming to me. So I was like, Okay, I'll take a, a, a day job. So my day job is in New York, but I flew to San Francisco because Tomorrow, I'll be doing the first brainstorm session of how to introduce Python animation, political education with juvenile um, youth in the juvenile system in East Oakland. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to fly to San Francisco and really just work with the community in there and then fly back to work, you know, on Monday. That's what I'm doing these days.
2: I have I have sort of a tough question which isn't directed necessarily at you but you you kind of brought up and is relevant to kind of what we talk about on the show and what you were talking about. So as the three of us who are all have jobs or are consulting in the tech community, how can we reconcile our very left political and socioeconomic beliefs about the perils of capitalism and the lack of social justice in america these days with the fact that we kind of work for this elite class of individuals and and this pretty much you know we've talked about this before but this kind of machine that's created to make money and to you could probably go as far to say to marginalize people too I've wrapped my head around this and tried to think about it, but I'm, I'm interested to hear how you, how you approach thinking about that in a, in day day to day.
0: Man, day to day, it's really, (laughs) it's really confusing. I'm like, I'm a living contradiction. I'm like at night on weekends, I'm helping individual people in communities. And during the daytime, I'm helping corporations explore more and be more efficient and grow the wealth gap and widen that wealth gap even more. And I'm just like, geez, this is like so difficult to do. Um, But it's, I find um, raising the awareness as we're talking about awareness and communications in these workplaces are really important as well because a lot of technologists, you know, they're, they traditionally don't come from poor communities. They traditionally don't, they're not representative of people of color of women so just as a woman or as a person of color and as a person who came from a very poverty community and who still aligns myself as someone in the working class to come into a space where it's mostly uh, white dominated, uh, male dominated and people who have a lot of wealth, you're disrupting that in the industry just by being present. And the conversations that you bring to a regular workplace really helps, builds the consciousness of like, damn, I didn't know that was going on. I mean, in San Francisco, you have the biggest wage gap and opportunity gap ever. In San Francisco, there's so much money. But if you just go like two blocks away from the financial district or downtown San Francisco, you have 80 percent of the schools that serve as, like black and brown uh, communities. They're defunded. They don't have computers in their uh, in their um, schools. They don't have teachers. The teachers are leaving because they can't afford to be present. Their schools are defunded because the tech companies, they get tax breaks for bringing new jobs into the city. But those jobs aren't getting filled by people in San Francisco. There's outside people who are coming in to get those jobs. And people who live and who are from San Francisco, most of them... They were never given that education uh, to really take on these opportunities. So someone like me just being in this space and shedding light on my community work of how I'm involved with the community and who I want to uplift really sheds light on the contradictions in the tech industry and really highlights the tech industry really, it magnifies the illnesses in our society, gentrification, racial profiling, the wage gap, who gets opportunities, who don't. Uh, so it definitely highlights and amplifies those influences in our societies. But those conversations are never discussed in the tech workplace. So I, I do think we play a really important role to be in these spaces, to kind of infiltrate and disrupt the kind of thinking so that people are mindful of building for humanity, not just building for profit. And, you know, what those profits are really doing to communities all around the world, not just in the U.S.,
2: yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. <laughs> I think
0: I think it I th- I think I think it's true. I mean,
2: just just to be really direct, you and the talk that you gave at at Strange Loop that Mike saw, and w- I watched the video of afterwards. Like that spurred us to. That's why you were mentioned on the podcast because it spurred us to talk about it and bring it up and you know try to talk honestly about our place in this too. You're doing you're doing a great job in that, and that's awesome.
0: But it is, I mean, it is very burdensome. We just had a comrade who committed suicide just last month who is in the movement. And it's a it's real issues when someone takes on activism, to be an activist and to do work in the community and take on that double role of like, okay, where well, I need to work and I need to really kind of sustain myself so I could continue this work. And you just really feel isolated in your beliefs because everyone else, they're so unaware and they're so they're not connected to the community. And it really, you know, it's a it's a really heavy, burdensome issue and, you know, stands to take in the workplace. I definitely encourage more people, you know, I applaud a lot of activists who are working every day in capitalist institutions and who really has a heart for the people because it's not easy and oftentimes you are made to, to be isolated because you make people feel uncomfortable. And naturally, as a humanitarian, you don't want to make people uncomfortable. So you try to tiptoe around issues and you, you stay silent often because you don't always want to sound like pessimistic either. And that does a lot to your, to your psyche. You know, I want to say like, yeah, it's a good thing, but self-care and mental health and all of that really goes into it. And building a community is really important as well because it's it's difficult out there.
1: We definitely give you props for the work that you do. And taking on that burden is a really is a serious thing. And I think that another thing it might be interesting to hear you talk about is that a lot of times people who particularly uh, people that work in technology, they have a hard time understanding the way that that set of beliefs that drew them to technology to begin with actually does have that, does have this, uh, exploitative, uh, impact on, on a number of people, right? Like the idea that, uh, you know, a lot of the heroes of Silicon Valley are these, uh, libertarian, you know, they consider themselves intellectual titans and they kind of, uh, are all about, Uh, privatization and uh, taking resources uh, away from the government and or attempting to like firsthand reform the government to be more like the businesses that they run or or have helped influence and that kind of thing, right? So, so on the one hand, you have uh, this ideology, right, where you're you're maybe a young privileged uh, youth and you can a young youth as opposed to an old youth, and you can go to college and like learn how to make apps and make money and and you can really believe in your heart that like making an app to like talk shit about your neighbors won't end up with like a bunch of like white people ratting out like the fact that they saw a black person like walking down the block. Right. And they don't understand that the platforms that they're creating and participating in are complicit in that kind of stuff. And they don't, they have a hard time seeing the connection between the ideology that drew them to technology to begin with and the freeing power of technology and that, and that like tendency toward exploitation. So what do you, what do you say to those young brothers who, uh, I mean, how do we get people to understand that earlier on so that they are positive humanitarian influences in in the, in technology and, and if they've gone this long without having to know that, how do we how do we make it clear that it it, it is really important for people to be aware uh, of that of that impact?
0: I would say definitely, as I'm very empathetic with uh, struggles um, that oppressed communities go through. I'm also very empathetic to Just decision making and the thought process that people who aren't aware of those communities often have. Because I often joke around when I get with my international friends and say, you know, I was born a capitalist. And I believe, used to believe, being a a conscious capitalist and having profit and, you know, doing something good with that profit. So it's very hard for people who grew up in the U.S., because we are not given political education. We don't have political education in our schools. And everything is like based on capitalist theory, capitalist ideology. And we're all raised to make profit. So we think we're doing good when we're making profit. I mean, that's why you have what well, currently there's 60 people in the world. If you combine their, their wealth, they have more wealth than 3.6 billion people in the world. And we applaud that. We look at that and we say, oh, those 60 people are successful. So, you know, it's really hard when we have different definitions of what success is, of like a house, of a car, of material things. And I never want to come across as an asshole to those people because me trying to sound radical and tell people like, oh, you're you're hurting this, you're doing that, you know, a lot of people just don't understand. So I, I often go to them with a lot of empathy as well. Because my number one goal is to bridge an understanding is not just to like label them as capitalist and, you know, point a finger. Um, that's never my role. My role is to say like, hey, I know you believe you're creating revolutionary revolutionary technology just because it's something different, it's something that's disrupting the norms. But it's very neoliberalism. And it's it's not revolutionary. To me, revolutionary, if it's not for the poor, if it's not for oppressed communities, then it it doesn't define itself as revolutionary. Often, I mean, it's all about awareness. You have to let them know like what technologies are doing. Currently, I had a friend like two years ago who was very excited about being on a project where she um, was creating a technology that once a person walks into a store, it it identifies like who they are by facial recognition, and it pulls up like their their credit score and different information to tell the salesperson like what they can, what type of like um, purchases they can consume. And she was like, "This is like so amazing," and I was like, "Yeah, that's also like going to." really affect people because racial profiling is going to tell you like who can and can't come into the store, what opportunities they can or can't have. Um, and that's something she didn't see. She just thought it was like a really cool technology, which it is, but it's just conversations that you need to have. And I, I always say, you know, my, my thing is not to, to be an asshole during my, um, my advocacy. Uh, is not to really hurt feelings, although I, I'm well aware I'm going to make people uncomfortable. It's really just to bridge hu- humanity and human conversations to different issues.
2: The last point is interesting too, because I think it it comes back to kind of what you were what we were talking about before around you know consciousness and the fact that like at some point when someone wakes up to the fact that there is imbalance and the fact that they're complicit in it in some way or that we're all complicit in in some way i guess i guess a lot of people in silicon valley and not just silicon valley but in the tech industry in general want to believe that there's such a thing as like the purity of ideas and data and that it's like just the fact that it's like just information like you're saying with this checkout or scanner in a store like in a completely flat perfect environment. Yeah, that's true. It's just information. It's just like you're getting this extra information and all that extra information is enabling a new a new set of things that you can do with it. And it's freeing in some way. But when there's this existing level of oppression or imbalance, you when you're creating this extra data or doing these things and creating these technologies, either you're not aware that you're leaving people out are not aware that it's just affecting people in a, in an adverse way, just because we're, we don't live in this vacuum. We don't live in a, in a, in a society where there is just all data is equal, you know, that's just not, that's just not true. Um, and so it, it's, it's interesting to, it'll be interesting to see now that, you know, like even. Like the Titans, like like Mike was saying, are getting questioned and the awareness is spreading a little bit. I don't think it's like I, I would love to say that it, you know, it's hit some kind of critical volume where everyone is listening, but at least there is some awareness that's spreading, which is amazing. I'm very it's gonna be a very interesting situation when when these Titans have to or if they have to face these these kind of issues and what, what they'll what they'll do with it.
0: I mean, I, I think you're it's a perfect time that they are facing these issues. You have Apple who's facing the FBI and NSA demanding that they um, give them backdoor access to products so they can go and get information from consumers without any middleman. If they feel as though someone is guilty or uh, should be investigated, you know, they want to freely have that access. And um, Apple, Tim Cook, Uh, The CEO, Tim Cook, is taking a stand saying like, no, we're not going to give you that power. We're going to protect the people, which is really interesting because Apple is not one of my favorite companies, (laughs) although I'm, you know, I have an iPhone and I have a, a Mac. I definitely understand, you know, the contradictions that they have with like the Congolese people using resources in that in that area and exploiting, you know, child labor to get materials that we need for our phones and for our Macs and just a lot of their issues. So it's never been my favorite company. But during this time, I do stand with them. And, you know, data safety and security is really important. So I do think we're at a time where those titans are being questioned. Um, and they're coming into the conversation of how do you protect the people, um, protect the people against mass government surveillance. Uh, protect their privacy from being sold uh, and their data being sold to other people. So I do think it's a perfect time where we do see right now one of the the biggest, most important cases in our lives. You know, if the government wins, what does this mean for consumers everywhere? We already know that our government and they use a lot of fair tactics. They say, oh, we're going to use this to target people we feel as though is guilty and who are a threat to the nation, but they easily fall into racial profiling people when they have these powers and when it's granted to them. And then it's like, well, if the government could do that with Apple, then who else can they do that to? Is protection, you know, is our information ever going to be safe? A lot of people use their laptops and their phones to hold everything, so it's just like how easy can it be hacked if we're going to do that? They, they say if Apple loses this case, you know, it will take a hacker three hours to get into someone's phone or Mac product. So it's really just interesting that they're being brought into this conversation and they need to take a stance. And whether they're going to be with the people or um, if they're going to give in to like the bigger forces, so I think it's an interesting time to be LASH.
1: <laughs> I know we're definitely thankful to uh, be able to have you on the show and uh, hear from you and give you an opportunity to you know, give us an opportunity to chat with you. But I think one thing Aaron and I have definitely learned in the, in the past couple of years is to shut up as much as possible (laughs) and uh, let other people talk. I'm very proud of myself. Uh, (laughs) Very proud of you, Aaron. Good job. That's advice that I give to other people who want to learn. Listening is a really, is a good way to do that. So uh, I hope everyone who, has an opportunity to hear the show. We'll do some listening and look into Edeline's other work. How, how else can people stay in touch with what you're doing? I mean, I point when people ask me what your work is about, I've, I've pointed them to that strange loop talk. Where else, where else should I, do you have some other artifacts that you're working on? Do you do any other writing or uh, speaking that, that we should, that you should you want to plug?
0: So I've definitely have not been the greatest with putting my information out there. I do want to, like, I want to put like the courses that I teach somewhere online so people have access to that and can teach other people in their community. I, I definitely don't feel as though um, I'm the the be all of information. I definitely believe in sharing as much as I can. I just. Move so fast that I often just don't have the time um, to really share stuff. So, I mean, you can find me on Twitter, Etheline um You can email me, and I'm I happily share all of like my information with people um, on how they could get into the and um, working with the community, and you know steps on actually where it's not a charity work, where it's actually something that the community welcomes and. How do you engage with the community? actually I'll be doing a workshop in Spain next week where we're working with censorship and privacy and activism. It's a conference in Spain and there's a lot of technologists who are creating like really dope products for activists but they don't um, include activists in their design process. So it's really intimidating for activists to use these products. It's like, what the hell is this? I don't know how to access this. So I'm doing a a, a workshop centered around like design, privacy and social justice. And it's kind of gonna be like twofold on how do you design with the activists in mind. Cause oftentimes, you know, people they just they don't have any connection to that community. So they're like, hey, we, you know, we want to help, but we're not down with that community. We don't know how to talk to them. We don't know where they are. Um, and they feel like really uh, at capacity at their job. So they're like, I can't even take like an hour outside of my, you know, nine to five to really go into another community to bridge that gap. So I'm giving them tips on how to do that. And then the second part is teaching activists. Again, I... I believe twenty first century activists needs twenty first century tools. So it's like, okay, we have these tools, but how do you then educate the activists um, to understand its importance, to understand how to use it, how to contribute um, during the the process of like the creation of tools and give feedback. So I'm doing like a two part workshop in that in Spain. I'm going to be sharing more information out i haven't
2: (laughs) (laughs) you're busy it's fair (laughs) yeah
1: you're doing fine but if
0: anyone like wants to message me like i'm i always take you know any email any phone call i'm first to go beyond middle school in my family you know so i feel i'm just always i always feel like i'm walking around like kind of lost but with a purpose um so i definitely love building and communicating connecting with people um so if there's anyone who wants to uh, Connect with me. Definitely feel free to contact me.
1: If you're going to be lost, you should be lost with a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us uh, this week. It was really uh, it was a pleasure to to uh, chat with you.
0: No, it's an amazing honor to be on the show and. Y'all y'all pretty dope.
2: You know, y'all not geeks. Y'all dope. I appreciate y'all. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, ever ever I, I think you think
1: I think you'd think that at least at least one, if not both of us would. Be dope on we <laughs> Well, thanks everyone for joining us. You can
2: find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash beats ride types. Tell your moms to like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash beats ride types. Support us by giving us some dollar dollar bills at patreon.com slash beats ride types. And yeah, thanks everybody. Cool. Thanks
1: a lot, Edeline, and right, uh, we'll fun. see everyone next time. Okay.
2: Bye. I just might be a